You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay. Well, like I said, there's some catechisms left. If you still like one, uh, that thing was full when we started. So I'm glad they're almost gone. And we're looking at 107. This is the final question in the shorter catechism. We've gone through the whole thing together. And we look at the conclusion today. So, 107. What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer given is the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teaches us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only. And in our prayers, to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him. And in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, Amen. That's a fitting way to conclude, I think, the Shorter Catechism. It's a wonderful conclusion. And you'll notice the very first word, for, that connects it with what went before. And it teaches us to enforce our petitions. We've had six of them, six petitions. We've had a preface and six petitions. To enforce our petitions with arguments that are to be taken from God himself, which is what this conclusion teaches. So as we pray, we can be rational human beings in our prayers. They're not just emotionally driven. They can be logically framed. Daniel 9.18 is an example. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So the rationale behind his praying is the mercy of God who accepts his prayer through the mediation of the coming Messiah. And apart from God, of course, we would have no reason to expect any of our petitions to be heard or answered. Even our best prayers, even the most eloquent biblical prayers are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. So they cannot be acceptable to him apart from Christ. This is one of the great benefits of his uh, intercession. Because Jesus pleads... And because of his plea, as he pleads his merit for us, our prayers, our services, our persons are accepted with God. No prayer would be accepted with God apart from him. So our arguments are taken from God, based upon him, his attributes, his mercy. I appeal to you, brothers, says Paul, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So the rationale is because of the Lord Jesus and his mediation and the love of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out in our hearts, they're to pray with him for his ministry and his person. Psalm 85, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And there you see the attributes of God, his justice and his mercy coming together in harmony to save the sinners whom he's elected. 
<clears throat> it's only in God through Christ that we see these attributes harmonized. You know, in Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, and he says at one point, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and in the same breath, he says, who will by no means clear the guilty? And I'm sure Moses was thinking to himself, okay, Lord, which is it? Do you forgive sin, or do you by no means clear the guilty? And it's both. It's the justice and the mercy of God. Right? Dick, yeah? Well, I can see why you would say that. I mean, faithfulness, obviously, we're called to faithfulness. But the fact of the matter is, you and I are not faithful. We're unfaithful. But God always is faithful. He remains faithful. So here we find him being faithful to his own attributes, particularly his attributes of holiness and justice. Yeah. But that's where they meet, and they meet in Christ. So on the basis of Christ and his work, all the perfections of God agree in giving salvation to the elect. And that's the benefit of the cross. His justice and his mercy meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Such arguments that we have in our prayers do not manipulate God in any way, shape, or form. He cannot be manipulated. We're not trying to persuade him to do something. Rather, it encourages our faith and expectation in his goodness. Prayer does far more for us than it does for God. He already knows what we're going to pray. He knows how he's going to answer our prayers. But he wants us to pray in large part because it sanctifies us. And we do so because he commands it. Again, I've said this many times. On those days when it's the hardest thing for me to do is pray, the bottom, the bedrock reason I pray is because he commands me to do it. You know, he's sovereign. We ask the question, why, why would you pray? Why would you evangelize? He already chose them. He's going to save them. Well, I'm not sure I have the full answer, but I know he commands me to do it. That should be enough. His command. They help reassure us that in his own good time, as he sees fit, God will faithfully answer our prayers. That's faith. Not only praying, but expecting that he will answer. That's an act of faith. And I think, you know, if we don't go to prayer with any kind of expect, now he may say no, and that's an answer, <laughs> isn't it? That's an answer to prayer, no. And I'm thankful he does say no sometimes. Because as I look back and think of some of the prayers that I've offered, I'm so glad they weren't answered in the, in the affirmative. But we expect that he will answer because we believe that he hears us for Christ's sake. That's faith. Any questions on the uh, introductory remarks? Okay. Uh, Sue? Yeah. So why why am I doing this? I, okay, I'm doing it for me in a sense, but Well and he also tells us that he will work through our prayers. It's sort of like preaching. Why would I preach? Because he already knows what he's gonna save. He's gonna save them anyway. Why preach? Well, because he tells me to do it. 
He, and he tells me that he's working through it. So he elects not only the people, but he appoints the means to the ends. So he appoints everything in your life that he's using to bring you to everlasting salvation. The people in your life, the means of grace, the circumstances, the suffering, all of it's ordained as secondary causes that he uses to bring you. And you know something? For all eternity, we're going to rehearse all the ways and methods that he used to bring us to faith in Christ. We'll sit around for a couple years and talk about your testimony. And then we'll sit around for a couple years and talk about her testimony. It's just going to be a wonderful time. Our, Our praying? Yes. Because God said that he would use it. So, you know, the fatalists will say, well, God elects, okay, it doesn't matter what you do. Well, we understand that God works through means, ordinary means. That's how he is pleased to work. So, yes, God is going to save Terry. We know that. But God tells me to pray for Terry. So I say, okay, Lord, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it. You're going to save her anyway, but I'll do it. And he tells me that he's working through that prayer some mysterious way to help save Terry. Right? That's how he has chosen to apply his salvation, to bring people to salvation, to present Christ. It's it's an amazing thing that he gives us the privilege to enter into this work. He could do it all himself in an instant. But he's chosen to use us. Alan? I think also because he knows we need to pray because it is a sanctified work. Right. uh, Especially when we don't want to pray. That's right. That tells us that we need to pray. Yeah, he, he knows we need to pray. It is a means of grace. Yeah. Laura? That's right. Yeah, because it's expressing faith in his sovereignty, his goodness, his mercy. How else do we express our faith other than in words and actions, right? You can say you love Jesus. Well, prove it. Well, one of the ways you prove it is you pray. Okay, Lord, I'm not sure I understand all this. You told me to do it. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to pray. And you told me you use it. I'm not sure how you use it. It's mysterious. It's supernatural in many ways, but I'll do it. That's an act of faith. The hypocrite, the one who doesn't have true faith, who claims Christ but doesn't have true faith, he won't pray. And that's one of the reasons why we say, well, how's your prayer life? Because that is the lifeblood of the Christian faith, prayer. And it's one of the hardest things we do. There's all kinds of opposition against our prayers. The world, the flesh, and the devil, all three conspire against us. That's one of the reasons why we find ourselves in those periods of dryness. It's really hard. We all do. We become dry, and it becomes rote, and thankfully the Spirit rouses us up out of that lethargy and teaches us once again the glory and the beauty of prayer. And then when he answers a prayer in a remarkable way, isn't that a joyful thing? It's an amazing thing. I remember we were praying. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. Dennis would come to prayer meeting. He's so faithful. Dennis is at every prayer meeting. And for, I don't know, years, we'd pray for his son, Joel. And uh, he came one night to a prayer meeting and he said, you know what? My son, Joel, called me and he told me that he's a born-again Christian. And we've been praying for him. 
It was a wonderful thing. And the, the, the small group of, the, of faithful prayers, we just rejoiced and thanked God for it. It was wonderful. Okay, the first argument to enforce the petitions is taken from God's kingdom. It is his universal kingdom in which the messianic kingdom is involved. Now, what does that mean? By that, we simply mean Christ's mediatorial kingdom, where he, as our king, gathers the elect. But God is king universally over the elect and the non-elect. He governs everything. So because it's his kingdom, I'm offering my prayer to him. Our petitions coalesce in the advancement and the perfecting of his kingdom. Anything we pray for that's biblical is for the advancement and the perfecting of his kingdom, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. His enemies are destroyed and his dominion is established, so he will answer our prayers. He can. He can search your heart. He can read your mind. He can forgive your sins. He can answer your prayers. He's the king. So who else are you going to pray to? The absolute Lord, as the absolute Lord and sovereign, he has supreme, undeniable authority to grant what we ask. As we're told uh, before, he can do far more abundantly than we can even ask or think. Well, somebody who has that kind of authority and that kind of power is somebody to whom I want to pray. You know. So that's the first argument that we're given in this conclusion. The kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. The kingdom. He is the king. Second argument we're given is that we enforce our petitions because of his power. He doesn't not only have authority, he has power. He is the almighty who has infinite. Now, what does that word mean? We say that word all the time. I can't even get my brain around that word. Infinite. There's no limit, no boundary. His person's not limited by space or time. His power is in no way limited. It's infinite, it's invincible, and it's eternal power so that he can do all things. He can do anything. Whatever the Lord pleases, that's unqualified notice. Whatever he pleases, he does. In heaven, earth, seas, deeps, you name it, he can do it. Anything we ask of the Lord, he's able to do with ease despite all the opposition of hell, earth, and our own sinful hearts. Isn't our conversion evidence of that? Think of the opposition that conspired against us becoming Christians. You got that tract from that cabbie in New York, stuck it in your pocket, sat there for how long? Weeks? I don't know how long. Finally, you pull it out, you look at it, and he's converted. And Satan tried his hardest to get rid of that tract. It's an amazing thing. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the second argument that we use in our prayers is God's power. Nothing is impossible to the Lord. His kingdom, his power, and his glory the substance of every petition tends unto and will end in his glory when they are fully answered. Everything will serve for the glory of God. Even the wicked are prepared for the day of his glory. For from him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's why we pray. He's king, he's almighty, and he's glorious. Even if we thought that our prayers wouldn't accomplish anything, which is not true, why not pray to this glorious God, ascribing worth to him, believing in him, worshiping him? He's worthy. I love Revelation 4 where it does talk about this. Melissa? Yeah, if God wasn't sovereign, why would we pray? Right. He wouldn't be worth asking anything of, right? He couldn't come through. <laughs> this is the irony of the false idols. They, don't have, they have mouths, they can't speak, eyes, they can't see. They're just dead, worthless. Anybody else before we move on? <clears throat> Carolyn? Right. Very good point. That's right. And that's the preface, exactly. Right? That comes first and foremost before the six petitions. Our Father, who art in heaven, right there. He's our Father. We have confidence in his fatherly goodness. We understand that he's in heaven, seated upon the throne. He wields all authority. He can do all things. We come ascribing that to him and our gratitude. And and again, prayer is a special act of worship. You know, too often we think of the laundry list. And you you were alluding to this, that you go before the Lord, just ask him for a bunch of stuff. It's worship. I remember a couple times in prayer meeting, um, that was last year, year before, we would have acts, you know, acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So we'd spend some time in adoration. And uh, I think it was a good exercise just to, to focus on the attributes of God in prayer that we're not just begging for stuff, you know. We're adoring him. I'm sorry, Sue? No, Well, the question is, what does God do with the prayers of unbelievers? In the Bible, and this is not me speaking, this is scripture, they're an abomination. I know, it's harsh, I know. It's hard to accept, but it's true. The only prayer, the only prayer of an unbeliever that God will accept is the prayer of repentance and faith. Lord, forgive me. That's it. Any other prayer is unacceptable to him. Just like their worship is unacceptable to him. There's no mediator, right? They're not joined to Christ. He's not interceding for them. They cannot be acceptable. Their persons aren't acceptable. Their services aren't acceptable. Their prayers are unacceptable. And I know it's harsh, but it's better off to tell the truth than to sugarcoat it. Their prayers are unacceptable until they come in repentance to believe in Christ. And so you're saying, well, what if they pray for others? doesn't make any difference. It's a prayer that's unacceptable. And so if you have somebody like that and they 
I mean, if you feel comfortable enough, if you have the chips, so to speak, you can say, hey, you know, I'm so glad you're trying to pray, but you know what? Your prayers can't reach the throne apart from Jesus Christ. You need to come and trust in Christ. Then your prayers will be acceptable and powerful. That's a great evangelistic tool, you know. Superstition, maybe. I mean, the Greeks prayed to an unknown god. You know, our pagan neighbors pray to whoever if they are somewhat spiritual. Well, they're all spiritual, but if they're inclined to do that. But they don't understand the true nature of prayer as an act of worship to the true and living God. They want to manipulate their false gods to give them stuff, including health, good marriage, you know. Things like that. In our prayers, we're to praise God who is worthy of our praise. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We're exhorted to praise the Lord. And holy joy and sincere gratitude, this is what Carolyn was saying, are the heart and soul of praise and prayer. Um, yeah, one of the reasons why in Romans 1 it says that God gave them over is because they were ungrateful. They refused to give thanks. There were ten. Where are the other nine? That's just typical of fallen human nature. Can I get back to that point, please? Sure. So, when you are raising a child, and you have that mentality, you are bedtime. Yeah. No, not at all. The question is, if you have a child who hasn't publicly professed their faith and you're training them to pray, if they're a pagan household, then it's not acceptable unless a child become a Christian. But if it's a Christian household, we treat them as Christians until they give us reason to think otherwise. Because they are Christians. A Christian, I distinguish between a Christian and a believer. A believer is somebody who is actively engaged and professed their faith. They're a Christian believer. A Christian is a person who's a member of the Christian church. And so our children, they're covenant children. They have special privileges as covenant children. And one of them being, they can come before the Lord, and he may be working in their heart. We don't know. We can't see the heart. But we train them how to pray. We train them how to worship. Prayer is worship, right? He wants the children in worship. So he distinguishes believing parents' children from unbelieving parents' children. It's a special thing that God does. He works through families. So it's not wrong. That's the answer to the question. It's not wrong at all. We teach them how to pray. We teach them how to worship. We teach them how to believe and obey. And we trust that the Spirit will ignite those logs put in the fireplace at his good pleasure. We pray like crazy. You can't change their heart, neither can I. Nate? This is why public worship and other confessions of sin, you always start with Christian you believe. Yeah, I mean, the confession of faith, people of God, what is it that you believe? Yeah, in, in, the, assembled, in the assembly, this is God's assembly. There may, may be unbelievers in our midst, but we're functioning as the household of faith. Now, if I go to the green downtown Hudson for some social activity and they ask me to pray, I'll pray to God. Here I pray to our Father. If it is a promiscuous assembly like down there, well, then I pray to our God because I don't know whom I'm, I mean, I don't know who's out there and I'm not called upon to, 
take the church before the throne of the Father, I'm called upon to take this gathered group of people before their God. Does that make sense? I try to make that distinction. I might be inconsistent at times because you, you kind of fall into it. You say Father by mistake. And, but that's my intent. Yeah. We rejoice in our sovereign God's kingdom, power, and glory. His people are happy and thankful that he is an absolute sovereign who governs all things. That is terrifying to the unbeliever. That is solace to the believer. He's absolutely sovereign. Our Arminian brethren, I call them brethren because I think they are true evangelicals. I think they love the Lord. They trust in Jesus. They believe in the cross. But they deny the sovereignty of God the Father in electing his people. They deny the sovereignty of God the Son in accomplishing our redemption. And they deny the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in applying salvation to the elect. So they deny the sovereignty of the triune God. They can sit in the pew. They ought not to be in the pulpit. That's the problem. Because they don't understand these things. Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? Being born again is a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit? Get out of the pulpit. Demit the ministry until you discover what these things mean. He will and is able to overrule the kingdoms of this world according to his sovereign good pleasure. Thank God that he can do that. The church is commissioned to attack the gates of hell and proclaim freedom in Christ to the captives. That's what that phrase means. The gates of hell shall not prevail. We're on a mission. We're attacking the gates of hell. I used to think when I saw that in Matthew 16, I used to think it was hell attacking the church. But that's not the posture of gates. Gates protect what's on that side. The gates will not prevail. We attack and we take and we liberate with the message of the gospel, and God will enable us to do so. You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All mankind is summoned to acknowledge God as the true God and to praise him for his mercies, but not all mankind will do it. We should pray that we might recognize matter for God's praise, his attributes, his mighty deeds, and receive hearts for his praise with sincerity and fervency and love that we praise his name. Matthew Henry says, Those that delight in praising God themselves cannot but desire that others also may be brought to praise him, that he may have the honor of it and they may have the benefit of it. We want more to be seated in the pews. We want people to come and praise the Lord. There's enough to go around for everybody. He's infinite. I do know this about that word. It means there's no lack. If I have a little bit of blessing, it's not going to take away from yours. So, The missionary enterprise aims at gathering the elect into the church where they can praise the Lord. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. But why? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship. I, think that, I don't remember any other place in Scripture where it says the Father is seeking something. But he's seeking worshipers. Isn't that amazing? And again, I, this whole enterprise of training little worshipers, isn't that a fantastic enterprise? Teaching them what it is to come before the true and living God in reverence and awe. 
You know, they might squirm, they might squawk, but they're observing. I hope you don't mind, but my children know how Mr. Gilliland chews his bread. They've watched you over the years. 28 years, they've seen you chew the bread. And they said, not Mr. Gillen, he chews it like this. <laughs> they observe, they observe. Not that you have anything weird about it. I'm just saying that that's, you're kind of up front, you know. <laughs> yeah, everybody's going to watch you chew bread today, right? Yes, right. So with our prayers, we join praises because praise is essential to prayer. Worship is essentially ascribing worth. If you're going to boil it down, what is worship? It's ascribing worth to God's name. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Three times. Ascription. And then it's summed up as worship. That's worship. And so, by implication, it has nothing to do with how you feel or what you get out of it. If you do this, we're promised that you will get something out of it. But you know the person who walks out of church on a Sunday afternoon and says, I didn't get anything out of that. I didn't know it was about you. Right? It's about the Lord. It's about ascribing worth to Him. And I'm sure that those suffering Christians who come to worship, it's not easy. And they don't walk out ready to clap. They walk out saying, you know, I did my duty and I enjoyed my privilege and I ascribed worth to His name. Because he's worthy. The outward public recognition of God's glory and supremacy is considered by him as worship. He's worthy to be praised. It's our highest duty, our greatest privilege. It's the only aspect of our current worship that will carry on into the far reaches of eternity. Everything else will cease. Preaching, praying, confessing, no longer be needed. The only thing that will continue is our praise. And we'll get up there and there'll be our our sanctified honky-tonk sitting there on the piano and he'll lead us in a song of praise. Rich, I'm talking about Rich. (laughs) Our worship in general and our prayers and praises in particular should not be based on ourselves. This is a clear implication, and especially in our generation. Many of the songs that are, um, they're catchy. They have great tunes. But the focus is on our character, our faith, our zeal, our good works, our noble intentions. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm going to love you till, you know, the end of time. Well, let's hope that's true, but that's not the matter of praise. The matter of praise is on him. The concentration ought to be on the triune God and who he is and what he has done. His love, His mercy, His grace, His covenant promises and fulfillment, His mighty deeds and achievements. That's why I love the ancient hymns. We have such a rich heritage in the hymnology. And you'll notice that most of those hymns are triune. They were intent on ascribing worth to the triune God and what He has done. 
Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he's done gloriously. For Let this be made known in all the earth. That's praise. Any questions on that? I know it's kind of poking part of our culture in the eye, but sometimes it's important. Okay? They're typically concluded with the word amen. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this word amen is an appropriate conclusion to our prayers. Well, why is that? Well, the word is taken from Abram's believing affirmation of God's covenant promise. You remember this famous text. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that's quoted in the New Testament. Paul quotes that particular text. Well, that word believed, it's a delocutive verb. It's used in address, talking to somebody, or response to somebody, and denotes the utterance, the audible utterance of the word or phrase. So it's a word that has to do with audibly saying something in affirmation. The word itself, in Genesis 15, 6, it's translated as believed. In Hebrew, amen. That's the word, amen. He believed. He amened, right? He was a good, well, I'll say Presbyterian. Presbyterians say amen too. The Baptists don't have a monopoly on that. I've heard it in our congregations, believe it or not. They've said amen. Um, He amened the Lord audibly. It was a verbal affirmation of what God had promised. So not only did he believe God's promise, but he voiced his amen as an audible response. Now you might think, well, okay, big deal. But God has made us as creatures to not only believe in our hearts, but as Paul says, to confess with our mouths. It's very important. It was something of a declarative act in response to the promise of a plenteous offspring. So what we have here in Genesis 50, remember the animals are sliced, he's walking through them. It's a solemn covenant ritual in which the vassals, the slaves' appropriate response was amen. I believe you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. This is my desire and assurance because you said it. And he voiced it. There's something about voicing. You know, young people, uh, they fall in love, you know, and they're dating. And it, but it's, what's, what's the Rubicon when there's no return? What is that point when there's no return? When you've said, I love you, right? Oh, that's it. You've voiced it. And that's important. The same principle carries over into the new covenant in which believers are to voice their faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. You're saved. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. What are you talking about, Paul? I thought it was just a matter of the heart. Well, that's what we're taught in a pietistic culture. You know what I mean by pietistic? 
By that I mean that your religion is all private. It's all internal. It's all mine, me, my. But no, religion is reformed piety. It's corporate. That's the true nature of Christianity, a corporate religion. And how do we understand each other's profession of faith? We hear it. We sing it. So it's not only in the heart, but it's through the mouth. If you confess me before men, not if you believe in me before men. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven, before all the assembled universe. I'll proclaim this is my child. But if you deny me before men, if you refuse to articulate with your mouth your faith in me, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. There's something about the audible response that's very important. Which is one of the reasons why we say, young people, let's go. If you're ready, if you trust in Christ, don't just keep it within. Let's profess your faith. Oh, sorry. Any questions on, on that slide? Okay? Nate. How do we... They can be. Right, right. And so it's how do we encourage and develop within ourselves more of an understanding and belief in the weightiness of They'll catch it far more than you teach it. So if we treat it glibly in here, it's not a big deal. If we take it seriously in there, it's a big deal, right? If if coming before the elders to profess your faith for the first time is an awesome thing, very intimidating, good. If it's no big deal, they won't see it as a big deal. So you can teach them until you're blue in the face, but it's how we respond ourselves to it, right? Um, I, I think it's important to treat it with reverence and awe, as it should be. And I think we do that. I mean, we're not perfect. We have much improvement, I'm sure. But we try. And I think that's half the battle right there. We're trying to show that this is important to us and to the Lord. You know, that's why we introduce the baptisms. We'll have a baptism today with Eloise. We introduce it and we try to explain briefly the importance and the significance of this so that we never forget. Uh, we, we say that to testify our desire insurance that we're going to be heard, that God will hear us. It's an offering up of our desires, after all. We're emboldened to plead with him that he'll answer us. And this is a prayer that's offered, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And it's just save us, destroy our enemies, because we know who you are. So the use of amen basically signifies the reality and the fervency of our desire to have the petition granted. And when somebody's up there praying or somebody's praying in prayer meeting or leading the group in prayer, we, he not only or she not only prays in the third person, first person plural, sorry. She, he or she not only prays in the first person plural, we, our, us, never I, me, or mine. You're praying with a group. You're representing the group. But also the group says amen. Why? Because that is my desire offered up to God, and that is my assurance that he'll hear us. Now, if he or she says something that's unbiblical, don't say your amen. 
You don't have to rake him over the coals. He might have made a mistake. But don't say your amen. Because that's not your desire. And that's not your assurance. Right? So we don't treat the amen cheaply, as Nate said. That amen is given because that prayer is biblical. It honors the Lord. And it is my desire and assurance. I'm sorry, uh, Jim? Amen. <laughs> well said. You're exactly right. The divines did conclude it very wisely. Yeah. I think you're right. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's my desire. That's my assurance. He's coming back. We are expressing our desire akin to, So be it. Let it be done. We also signify our trust and confidence that God will hear and answer. We quietly rely upon him to fulfill our requests according to his wisdom, goodness, and love. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You'll strengthen their heart. You'll incline your ear. And again, he's coming. Even so, amen. Any questions? Melissa? Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, similar to the Old Testament, may it come to pass, right? That's my desire, may it come to pass. My assurance, it's going to come to pass, you know, according to his wisdom. So one more thing I need to add, and this hopefully this doesn't throw a wrench into everything we've done. It's not found in Scripture. <laughs> this conclusion, as it's worded, doxology, is not found in the earliest and best manuscripts. So if you go into the ESV, Matthew 6, it's not there. It's included in a very large number of Greek manuscripts. It is there, so the King Jimmy, the King James Version, has it in there. Yeah. The earliest forms of this conclusion, it varies greatly. Some of them are shorter, some of them are longer, which indicates, again, the idea that it was assumed later. And it was probably used or added as the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples began to be used in public worship because they wanted to conclude it in an appropriate way, which, is, which probably explains why it was added. It's important for us to know what is and is not the inspired, infallible word of God. So I, as much as I hate to have this slide up here today, I need to tell you this. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. There's the law. Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Wisdom. Every word of God proves true. Don't add to his words. New Testament. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Don't add to, don't take away. This is God's word. So that's why I am duty bound to tell you about this. Now, as much as we like and appreciate this beautiful conclusion, and it is beautiful, it's not inspired by the Spirit, as far as we can tell. 
But it is in perfect harmony with Scripture. There's nothing in the conclusion that's unscriptural. You can find these things in Scripture, as we've seen, and it's deeply edifying. So it's not wrong to conclude our prayers with it, as long as we realize it wasn't in the text. Jim? Yeah, it's biblical, but not biblical. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's entirely appropriate to close our prayer with this conclusion. There's nothing wrong with that. Because it is biblical in the small beef sense. As long as you know that it's not part, and we don't believe that it's part of the original inspired text of Matthew 6. That's important for these reasons, you know. So, all that being said, the work we've done today hopefully is not for naught. Um, It is a wonderful way to conclude the Lord's Prayer and the Shorter Catechism. Any final comments or questions before we close? Okay. Well, it's been a wonderful study, I think. Thank you for your perseverance. There's still, I think, five or six catechisms left. If you want them, you can take them. And uh, we'll begin, I think, next week. Pastor Pilon has a one-off. Then I start evangelism. And then he will deal with the PCA position paper on sexuality. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you boldly, recognizing that you do exercise sovereign dominion over all things. You wield infinite power, and all glory is yours. And for that reason, we pray and we rejoice and give thanks. Please prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.